So this morning, our primary text for today, as well as for every Sunday leading up to Christmas, is going to come from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, but before you turn there, I'd like to encourage you to take your Bibles and, and, and turn with me to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want you to understand that during um, the time of the Bible, names were extremely important, much more so than they appear to be now. Names were, were given carefully without regard as to how someone might tease another person because of their name. I don't know about you, but one of the first conditions that I consider before the naming of our children was, what does that name rhyme with, or what does it sound like? Very careful on how we select names, but but in the times of the Bible, their approach to, to, to selecting names was so much more different than it is today. And I have you in Hosea chapter 1, because I want to read through uh, some of chapter 1, and I want you to see some of the most tragic names, I believe, that are recorded in Scripture. And these are Hosea's children, beginning in verse number 2. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. So he went. And he took Gomer, and she conceived and, and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Jezreel literally means God sows. So call him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name Loruhama. Loruhama means no mercy. For I will, have, I, will, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or uh, by war, by horses, or by horsemen. So one child is named God sows. Uh, another child is named No Mercy. And then verse number 8, when she had weaned uh, Lo uh, Rumaha, uh, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Lo Ami. Uh, or that name literally means not my people. It goes on to say, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in place where it was said, you are not my children, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. See, Bible, in the Bible, as we read through names, we can understand that names have great significance. Because the name of a person expressed the essence or the character or, or, or of that person. And, and throughout the Bible, you'll see that there were times that, that sometimes people changed their names in order to, to match their season of life. In the book of Ruth, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, upon the death of her husband and her sons, changed her name to Mara. 
which means bitterness. So, so the biblical concept of naming was rooted in the understanding that the name expressed the essence of a person. So to know the name of a person was to know the character or the nature of that person as well. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah was recording these words some 700 years before our Lord was born. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would have many names. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this verse reveals four names of our Lord, and each name unlocks a different aspect of his character and his nature. So understanding these names can help us to understand who Jesus is and how he can help us today. And so this week we'll begin with the first name, that name being Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is a word that's used primarily to describe the Lord. It's also used in the scripture to describe extraordinary or supernatural things in the Bible. The word wonderful means extraordinary, means surpassing, marvelous, or astounding. This word was not used in a trivial sense as it's often used in today's language. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go to Psalm chapter 139. In Psalm 139, I want you to see how the psalmist, who's David, I want you to see how David is blown away by the knowledge of our Lord and how he marvels at who he is and how he's astonished by how great our Lord is. And Psalm 139, beginning in verse number 1, says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me to know. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is blown away at the, at the knowledge of our Lord. He stands in marvel. He's astonished at who he is and what he does. So we have the word wonderful, and then we also see that word counselor. And the word counselor simply means one who plans. One who plans. So, so this word means uh, that uh, Christ is the one who has the wisdom to rule. In, in Isaiah chapter 11, it also reveals to us that this king, this Messiah, this Emmanuel, has the spirit of counsel within him. In Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
When Jesus lived upon this earth, his teaching, his, his judgments revealed to everyone. In John chapter 1, we read about how Jesus rightly analyzed Nathanael. I want to begin reading. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, look a few pages or a page just to your right. You'll get to John chapter 4. I'll just go to verse number 7. We'll start there. It says, A woman from Samaria came uh, to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. But I always find this interesting. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus was thirsty, and the disciples went to get food. Go figure. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, we have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's keep going. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Uh, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus, in, in, in this encounter, I mean, this woman marvels at the insight of our Lord. And she knows that anybody with that type of insight has, has to be the Messiah. And Jesus clearly says, yeah, that's me. And then verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and they were coming to him. Notice how people marvel at their encounter with the Lord. Nathaniel marvels that Jesus knows him. The details about him. The woman at the well marvels that Jesus knows every detail about her life. And one more place. Look at John chapter 7. Even like officials working for the government marveled at our Lord. Notice what it says in the uh, beginning of verse number 25. It says, some of, the, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And he is here speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And to him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. And he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because this hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man had done. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the temple guards go to arrest Jesus. But then look down at verse number uh, 45. It says there that the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one's ever spoke like this man. People marvel at who our Lord is. Now, Taken together, that word wonderful and counselor literally means a wonder of a counselor. Now, why is this significant for us today? Significant because those who go to him will never be led astray. Because he is a wonder of a counselor. Now, since Christ has come and we have the privilege of living post his life, post his death, his burial, and his resurrection, now that we're on this side of all of what Christ has accomplished while he lived on earth, we have greater insight as to who he is. We see that Christ lived 100% man, 100% divine. I'll get to that in a moment. While he lived on this earth, he bared all the trials and temptations of humanity. He suffered incomprehensible persecutions. He was eventually unjustly brutalized and ultimately executed. Due to his intense suffering, 
I believe that Jesus is the most empathetic counselor imaginable. He knows what it means and what it feels like to endure pain. He knows what it means to be hungry and to be thirsty. He knows what it means to be poor and to be homeless. Our Lord knows what it means to be rejected, even by his own family. He knows what it means to be forsaken and to be left all alone. And these are the experiences that confront us in our lives even here right now. And so when you feel abandoned, when you feel confused, when you feel alone, when you feel worried or even rejected, Jesus stands before you as wonderful counselor. As a, as a wonder of a counselor, Jesus is the only person who can truly comfort us. He's the only one who could give us solid, solid guidance about how we're to approach the, the circumstances and situations of our lives. As wonderful counselor, Jesus guides, encourages, and strengthens us to conquer whatever trials and temptations that we might face. Now, how many of you, or, or maybe someone that you know, how many of you can remember a time or a season in your life when you would read the advice of people like Joyce Brothers, Ann Landers, or, or Dear Abby? Or maybe you watch or listen to, to people like, like Dr. Laura or Dr. Phil. Now, they all make their living giving advice to other people. And I'm not giving a message on why you should avoid them today. But I am going to say this. While they can give good advice, they cannot claim perfection. Psychiatrists routinely charge hundreds of dollars per hour for their counselor, for their counsel. Much of it is good, but they are never perfect in how they advise or, or counsel another individual. Why do I say all that? Because the beautiful reality is that our Lord, our Lord goes to no one for advice. He goes to no one. When anyone comes to him, he gives them the perfect counsel that they need. Jesus is the perfect teacher and the ultimate counselor. Therefore, we should seek and to trust in his guidance even when it doesn't make sense. Ever discovered that God's ways are not often your ways? His plans aren't often your plans? Like, like the Christmas season, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of that reality. Like for me, if I'm gone, I'm not sending my son to, to, the, to this earth to suffer and to be unjustly executed and brutalized for a whole bunch of sinners who don't love him or care for him. Like I'm, I'm enacting a different plan if I'm in control. Aren't you glad I'm not in control? I am. The, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I think, ultimately defies our human understanding. We just recently worked through the book of Philippians, but turn back there real quick with me if you would. Go to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, now go back to, to verse number 6 again. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ was always fully God and fully human. God the Father clothed God the Son in humanity. This is often referred to as hypostatic union. Say that word, hypostatic union. Say that word. Hypostatic union is not as complex as the word might seem. Hypostatic simply means personal. So the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Jesus has two complete natures. He's 100% human and 100% divine. So, so the hypostatic union, that doctrine teaches us that those two natures are united into one person, the God-man. Jesus had two persons. He, Jesus was not two persons, rather. He was two natures that made up one person. There was never, ever, ever a time when Jesus was on earth that he wasn't fully divine. Never. So the hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and of the human into one person, Jesus Christ. Now, is there any wonder that the angels say, is there any wonder that the shepherds came to worship? Is there any wonder that the Magi took a two-year journey just so that they can find the Lord and present their gifts and worship Him? Now, I love our decorations. What I love most about our decorations is that actually gets it correct. It's a beautiful picture over there. And notice what's not there. (laughs) The wise men, they're not there. They haven't gone there yet. They're on a journey. So when I come to your house during the Christmas holidays and I see your nativity scene and I see your wise men, I'm just going to casually move them off to the side. 
So it will depict the reality that they're on a journey. They haven't made it to the manger just yet. I would say praise God for the divine counselor. That he is a wonder of a counselor. We can celebrate the fact that we have a God that is actively involved in guiding and leading his people. The Christian God is the only one who loves his followers enough to become personally involved in leading and guiding them in their life. Raise your hands if you would. If you've personally experienced the guidance of God in your life. Isn't that awesome? A wonderful counselor. He sets the plans. He is the one that we turn to in all things to get the advice and the wisdom that we need in order to, to handle the circumstances and the situations that we face. Uh, one more reference for you. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3. I want to close on this verse. My prayer is that we would all take comfort of the promise that's contained in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, the verse will sound familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Verses 5 and 6 says, To trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Now all the wisdom that a person can acquire can never replace the need to trust in God. Now, in the Hebrew language, that word heart does at times uh, refer to one's emotions. But more often than not, when that word heart is used, it's referring to a person's intellect or their will. So as a person trusts in the Lord and acknowledges Him, and that acknowledgement isn't a, a nod of recognition to Him, no, it's, it's placing yourself in full submission unto Him. It's surrendering your life unto God through faith in the Son. And so if that person will, will, will trust in the Lord, acknowledge Him in all their ways, with their heart, with their mind, with their strength, with their will, it says that they will find that God will make their paths straight. Now, often I think we misunderstand what this is saying. The, the scripture says that he will make straight your paths. It doesn't say that he will make those paths easy. It doesn't say that he'll make that, that path light. It doesn't say that uh, he'll make that path stress-free. The scripture says that he will make their paths straight. Now, it's interesting, here's where it gets interesting, depending on your translation. Look, at, look very closely at your, at your scriptures right now. Raise your hand if, if yours says that he will make straight your paths. Raise your hand. You have probably the ESV, right? If yours says that he will make your paths straight, raise your hand. Where is that? Yeah, it's probably the NIV or the New American Standard. Okay, all you New King, New King James Version says that he shall direct your paths. Any New King James? There you are. The New Living Translation, one of my favorites, it actually says that he will show you 
which path to take. Who has that version? Some of you? Yeah, yeah, no. So what I've discovered uh, a couple of years ago, and this has just totally changed, changed me on a personal level, when I begin to understand what this verse is truly saying, what, I, what I've discovered through some Hebrew scholars and, and even verified by my all-time favorite ancient language wizard, which would be my son, Logan. Man, I missed that boy today. He's in Africa. He'll be there for two years. But I can remember working through this text a couple of years ago while Logan was in uh, Wheaton College studying ancient languages, and I was hearing something, I was reading something, and I was like, wait, wait, is, is this actually true? And so uh, Logan was my go-to source when it became uh, difficult for me to understand things in Greek and Hebrew, and I, I'd send him a message, hey, Logan, look at this verse, and he'd look at it, I said, I, I think this is what it's saying, and, I, and I, we'd exchange messages back and forth, and he was like, yeah, Dad, that's exactly what it's saying. So, so let me share with you what this verse literally is saying. The, the Hebrew phrase that's translated as that he will direct your path or make your path straight or he will make straight your path or he will show you which way uh, or which path to take is actually saying something much more complex. The, the literal rendering of that verse is that God will, will take you on a roundabout way that ends up in the right direction. Think about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. It says don't lean on your own understanding. All your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will take you on a roundabout way that ends up in the right direction. Man, that's mind-blowing to me. Because for me, that tells me that God is just as interested in the journey that I'm on, not just the destination. So he will take you on a roundabout way to get you in the right direction if you'll trust in him. It says lean not on your own understanding. Look, if our, if our path in life was linear and always linear and we could see the end destination, it requires no faith because we can see it. We can see where God's going to lead us. We can see where he's going to take us. No, that requires no faith. God says in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll take us on this journey that's not going to make sense at times. Might even be frustrating at times. But all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll take you on this roundabout journey that will end up in the right destination. Man, that's good stuff. I think so many times that, that we're stuck and we're frozen in disobedience unto God because we know that God's called us to do something, but we don't understand what that means. And so in our disobedience, and I'll just go there, in our disobedience, we sit and we wait until we can get it all figured out. God said, just trust, trust in me in all your ways. I'm going to show you the way to go. I think sometimes we're, we're guilty of, man, if God would just give me a roadmap to my life so I can understand what's in my future, then it would be a lot easier to follow him. In fact, in the matter, it probably would be a lot easier. It would be absent of faith, and that's not a good thing. Sometimes we're paralyzed in our relationship with God, and we're not able to grow and to move forward because God has already spoken to us and told us something that we're supposed to do, 
But we're too busy trying to figure out the second step, the third step, and the fourth step. And God's like, man, I'm not, maybe I'm not even going to reveal that second step until you take that first step in faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will take you on a roundabout journey that will end up in the right destination. And in those seasons of difficulty, when you're confused, you're frustrated, you're beat down, you're worn out, we have a wonder of a counselor that we can turn to, that we can rely on to get the strength, the encouragement, uh, the, the, the guidance that we need to live a life of complete obedience unto him. God has an amazing plan for our lives. It's an incredible journey. It's a journey that's not always going to make sense. It's a journey that's not always going to be easy. If it made sense or if it was easy, it wouldn't require faith. But you can trust in the wonderful counselor. And let me say this and I'm done. The more you know him and the more you know his word, the better equipped you will be to trust him. Let's pray. Father, may we discover that you are a wonder of a counselor. Thank you for this life. Thank you for this church. And in this moment, Father, help each and every one of us identify a decision that needs to be made in our life to fully and completely honor and glorify you. In this time of invitation, we commit unto you, Father, for those that need to, to, to join the church, to those that need to express their faith in you, to follow in baptism, to confess and repent from sins, to seek about reconciliation, whatever is needed in this moment. God, I pray that we would not be worried about what's happening around us, but truly focus on what needs to happen within. For your name, for your honor, and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.